Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 129. We are officially in June. We just have a couple of more episodes of Artifice season five, and then we're going to take July off and have season six ready for you guys on August 1st. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Um, but there's lots of excitement happening between now and then as well. Um, the big thing is, I, I think I, I think I mentioned this last week, but listen, I can't remember. Oh, there wasn't an episode last week. So I didn't mention this last week, but you guys know I'm working on releasing my new album, The Hallowed Wide. I've told you enough times. It's very special. It's a beautiful narrative concept project. Um, but the thing that's new is we are officially on my favorite part of the record. So for those who don't remember, I've divided the record into four parts that I represent by this perfect little spell. First descend, then divide, make it hallowed, make it wide. Um, the descent is the first three songs that are all kind of on the theme of like making a decision to enter the hallowed wide, which is again, the space between humans and peoples. Um, then the, the divide section is about kind of letting go of misconceptions, preconceptions, privilege, um, you know, different things that are preventing us from becoming closer. And now we are officially in the third part of the album, Make It Hallowed, which is just my favorite. It's so magical. Um, it's beautiful. And the first song from um, the Make It Hallowed portion is coming out on Friday, June 17th. It's called Sweet Dream, and it's like the dream sequence of the Hallowed Wide. Everybody loves a dream sequence, and it's very beautiful, and it's very pink. If you want to get Sweet Dream a whole week early, sign up for my mailing list. It's coming to the mailing list June 10th, so make sure that if you want it early that you sign up for the mailing list before June 10th. Okay, that's enough of that. Um, there's many things going on, but if you really want to know about those things, um, I have talked about them in other episodes. So uh, I think I will just go ahead and introduce uh, Michael Feldman. So Michael is someone that I've had on my kind of like list of people to interview for a while, and I wanted to just wait until the time felt just right and I felt the right amount of like confident with everything and that time was this year so um I'm I'm just thrilled to have finally interviewed Michael and it was such a great conversation just you know those that instant friends feeling that I talk about sometimes um and what an incredible story like a truly incredible story um full of serendipity and full of like just so many beautiful inspiring things um so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Michael now Michael Feldman, a medicinal chemist by training, after setting up and running the lab for the 1996 Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta, came to Utah in 2000 to help set up drug testing for the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympic Winter Games and to become general manager of Northwest Toxicology Laboratories. After running and selling two biotech companies, in 2011, he and his family decided it was time to do something completely different. Missing the food from New Jersey, he and his wife Janet planned and built Feldman's Deli, Utah's only authentic Jewish deli, featuring a variety of traditional sandwiches and old European slash old world specialties opened in 2012. He serves as chief everything officer. The deli has been recognized for its authenticity and quality by everyone Salt Lake City, by every Salt Lake City authority. Like I said, 
Michael Feldman's a Salt Lake City favorite. It's Deli Done Right. You can occasionally catch him playing his music at the deli or other venues as part of the two old guys. Um, so I hope that bio gives you just a little idea, but Michael has done so many things, worked in so many places, and has just followed creativity both in and out of the arts throughout his life. Um, it's just, you know, it's a perfect like lifelong story of, of creativity, which is, you guys know, my favorite. So that's all. Join the mailing list if you want Sweet Dream a week early. And like, listen, you do. It's wonderful. If you like this podcast and you like the whimsy that happens here, this next part of the album is like, it's going to be right up your alley. So, okay, that's my plug. And without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Michael Feldman. Here it comes. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Well, it's great to have you. Thanks. Um, I'm, I'm really excited, and I was just, earlier today, I was looking at your website, and just my mouth was watering so much. Everything looks see. so good. I need to try and get this to be quiet. Yeah, and it's casual too, so. I know, but still. I'm actually, I'm doing a podcast interview for someone else's podcast in a couple of days, and I hardly ever get to be on the other side, so I'm kind of excited. <laughs> actually, Good, yeah. my, mine's not on silent either. Put mine down too. Um, so, any, oh, go ahead. So where will this podcast be broadcast? It goes on all the platforms. So okay. Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud. Um, this, I've done about 130 interviews. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And I just, I don't know. I almost exclusively interview people from Salt Lake. I didn't, uh, really intend for it to be that way when I started the podcast, but, uh, it's nice. We have so many talented people here and mm -hmm. it's just, I find it to be like, a. I find it to be like a lovely practice for my own sense of community. Yeah. You know, like I could make lunch dates with people, but it, it, it seems like a podcast interview is like, I don't know. It's just nicer. <laughs> like we get to know each other and also we're, you know, making content. Yeah. It's, it's a good way to, um, explore each other. Exactly. I feel the same way. Yeah. yeah. And it almost like, it almost is easier for people than like agreeing to like go to lunch with a stranger, right. you know, it's like, right. uh, it's a feature. And then, but then I feel like I get to know so many cool people in the community. So great. Well, let's get started. Sure. Um, where are you from? Originally New Jersey. New Jersey. Okay. I like to try to capture like the origin story. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear what you were like as a creative child. Like what kind of mediums did you, um, did you kind of feel excited about as a little kid and, or just what was your play like? Mm -hmm. Well, I lived in a house where my mother was an amateur opera singer. Amazing. She actually sang for the New Jersey opera company in Newark, New Jersey. Okay. And my mom and dad both uh, were always active in, in music. My dad played bugle before he got drafted and oh, he wow. fought World War II. He was over there. Was he there like 
bugling mostly? No, or? he was hoping. Yeah. He he told them he played bugle and they gave him a rifle. Oh, man. <laughs> no, but he, they ended up putting him in as a medic. Okay. So he didn't have to carry a rifle so much, but he saw probably the worst part of the war because he was dealing with right. all the injuries and bodies. And being that he was Jewish and spoke Yiddish, he ended up being a translator to um, free the uh, inmates at the concentration camps. Oh, wow. Because they wouldn't trust anybody. And because he spoke Yiddish, they trusted him. Wow. That's an incredible story. But um, as far as uh, my creativity, my mom wanted me to play piano. I'd rather be out playing football. Yeah. So that didn't last very long. Sure. Piano's hard for little kids sometimes. Like it's, it, it requires a certain, you know, attention span that's yeah. difficult for children. And also just the, the physicality of it, like just right. the, the finger coordination is, it's a, it's a high, it's a tall order for a little kid. Yeah. Well, I, I, I studied piano probably for about two years cool. with a guy who wanted me to go the classical route and my interest was in, you know, popular music. Yeah. Elvis Presley and stuff like that. And I quickly um, became disinterested in the piano and would rather do sports and things like that, which is what I did with friends of mine. But I did finally get interested in wanting to play music with friends. So by the time I was about 12 years old, I started playing music in like a garage band. Awesome. I was playing keyboard so that the piano finally came yeah, back. You, ha- you kept a few of those old skills. I kept, but you know, playing three chord uh, country songs and rock songs was a lot easier, and 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 more fun to play than trying to play. Uh, Hot Chopin's, yeah, you know? sure. <laughs> or like you know, yeah, when you're starting little kids, it's one thing that I think about a lot. You know, I'm fascinated by like creative development and mm-hmm. the kind of links between like our childhood you know, dabblings and what we end up doing as adults. And lots of times as a little kid, when you're trying to learn a new medium, you just can't do anything all that interesting because your skills are so limited. So, you know, lots of times that piano repertoire for a little kid is hot crossed buns. You know, it's too boring. Um, Okay. I have a couple more questions. So um, I want to know about, do you have siblings? Uh, two younger sisters. You're the oldest. I'm the okay. Oldest. I find that like whether the siblings are doing creative things can matter. I'm the oldest too. Mm. So with you similar there. Um, and then I don't know much about Newark except that I know that, um, Rutgers is in Newark, right? Well, one of their campuses, yeah. their medical schools in Newark. Okay. I was thinking, cause I know yeah. Rutgers has a great music program, which is making me think, I mean, certainly there's more kind of music culture there than there is here maybe mm-hmm. but what what was it like i'd like to know like what you were exposed to like not it doesn't even have to just be music but mm-hmm. you know just what was it like um you know in terms of of art culture in your childhood what what did you what were you exposed to we're at rutgers oh no just oh. in your childhood oh my child <laughs> yeah. well, so obviously my my um my mother being into opera my my dad having um, played a little bit of jazz trumpet, uh, bugle more than trunk, trumpet, um, there was always music in the house. My mother uh, would either have music on the phonograph back in the days when yeah. that was the way we listened to music. Right. 
And uh, there was opera in the house. There was Broadway in the house. Uh, my mother would always be singing, almost to the point of driving us crazy. And she was singing opera. She was singing opera and a, a lot of Broadway and, cool. and that kind of thing. Uh, she fancied herself as being um, a Broadway singer. Yeah. Uh, we belonged to a swim club. And every summer they would put on a musical program, all the, you know, the guest amateur music program. And they were in every one during all the years we went to Ashbrook Swim Club. They would be in the season ending musical. Your parents. My parents. Yeah. Things like uh, cool. Oklahoma and, and those kinds that. of things. So it was amateur plays, but both my mom and dad were uh, very active in that. Um, so your dad was singing too, or was he playing oh, yeah. the pit? Cool. Singing, dancing, cool. you know. They oh, were I both. love it. My dad was a really good dancer. Cool, cool. If we ever went to big events like weddings or whatever, women wanted to dance with he my dad. He was cutting a rug. Yeah, he, love it. he made them look good. <laughs> That's so, awesome. So I, I remember that. And of course, I got bar mitzvah, and, and so I had to take dance lessons cool. so that I could dance with whoever yeah. at, the, at my bar mitzvah, which was great because I... Um, uh, I still love to dance even today. Awesome. And, and my wife, uh, she likes to dance. So when we get away, I mean, we, we've traveled to places like uh, Puerto Rico where yeah. you know, we can enjoy salsa dancing right. and things like that. So th that was always a big influence, uh, made me want to love, love music even more. Yeah. And, what uh, about like um, books or like, I'd love to know like, just what it was like in the family culture, like were your parents introducing you to new ideas? Like was there kind of discussion in the family about, yeah, different ideas or philosophies or, you know, was there creative thinking kind of modeled in the family? My, my mother was an avid reader. Cool. She always had a book in her hand. Um, so she would, a lot of it was books I wasn't particularly interested in, but she did introduce me to some... Uh, writers, uh, I'm trying to think of Give me the guy clue. who wrote, wrote The Man uh, about the president. Uh, oh, I don't Jan know. Oh, can't remember his name. But uh, Tom Clancy, um, before that, um, uh, Patterson. Yeah. Uh, I, I used, my particular interest, I liked adventures, cool. adventure stories. So I, I read a lot of that. And of course, along the way, you know, in school, you were introduced to some of the classics, sure. like um, uh, Mark Twain. Yeah. I always found his writing to be very clever. It probably has been an influence on me because I tend to write clever songs. Yeah, sure. You know, like I, you just mean like, do you mean clever like in the stories or do you mean clever like wordplay? Clever wordplay, yeah. um, being poignant while... Um, not trying to be showy. Totally. Just having a way of saying something. And then when you think about it, you go, oh, now I There's get something what you there. mean. There's something there. I really feel that as well. And I, and I, 
I think when I was little, I'm the oldest too. And I feel like there are pros and cons of being the oldest, you know, (laughs) but uh, one thing is my mom did read to me a lot when I was little and, um, specifically she read to me a lot from this mother goose rhyme book. Uh And I, I really think like my kind of ear for like rhyme and meter, Mm -hmm. like I, I have to imagine I owe a lot of it to, to that. Um, or yeah, just like little alliteration, little plays on words. Those things feel so important. Um, and fun when you're right. writing lyrics. What about, um, like, were you drawing crafts? I, I used to sketch a lot. Cool. I was, uh, I like charcoal. Wow. Um, I was introduced to art, you know, in school when they still had those things. Yeah. But, um, I was very, um, I was an avid sketch artist. I would take a pad, take my charcoals. I'd go out to the park. I'd sit and sketch things. I like to uh, just use my imagination and sketch things in my room. Yeah. Um, when you were pretty little or more like a teenager? Oh, uh, I guess I started sketching probably before I was 10 years old. Wow. It sounds like you took it seriously. Is yeah, that right? I did. Yeah. Was that something that like, did you feel like there was a uniqueness there to you? Like, did you notice other kids your age, you know, in the park sketching or did you kind of feel, did you feel like... Um, I mean, I think really what I want to know is whether you felt a heightened, um, appreciation of creativity or how you saw yourself. Um, I didn't have any friends that were into sketching. So normally I would do it. It was, it it was kind of my time for me to allow myself to be creative. Um, I like to try, I'd like to try and sketch something and make it look really close yeah. to what I was sketching. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when you look at different artists, there's impressionists and then there's realists. And I right. was more of a realist. I, you know, I wanted to make a, a sketch look like a black and white photo. Yeah. I love so much stories of little kids taking their art very seriously. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm so fascinated by like, what is that? Like what gives a little kid, you know, the kind of permission to like see themselves as an artist and to take something right. seriously. Do you, do you have any thoughts or, or about it? Well, I think for me, it was a way for me to get away and, and, and create like a, a different world for that moment. Yeah. I was able to either uh, get into sketching animals. I love to sketch horses and dogs and, tigers and lions and stuff like that because you know in newark you don't have that but if if i were to be sitting and trying to sketch a picture of a a lion or a lion and his mate uh i I felt like i was able to transpose myself from newark into the serengeti yeah so were you escaping like was your childhood difficult or did you just you just like to escape like it's play Oh, I just wanted the diversity. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I lived in a pretty big city, you know, it's all concrete and asphalt. Mm. And uh, although we had a nice park nearby, um, being, drawing animals gave me an opportunity to just imagine that I was out yeah. west or I, I would imagine that I was uh, in India or Africa. Right. And... Uh, and for, for for the moments while I was sketching, you know, I was 
you know, extremely uh, involved. You know, there wasn't yeah. much distraction. It allowed me to it. just. I love this things. idea. I was just talking about this with one of my students the other day. It feels to me like a lot of us as creatives, like we we learn kind of intuitively as children or you know as young adults even maybe how to kind of hack like it's it's like a hack into like our human you know psychology mm-hmm. we we can kind of will ourselves into something else like right. we can use this tool this incredible gift of our imagination mm-hmm. and you know I, I feel like sometimes people who haven't experienced this get confused about it. Like they think it's like a dissociation or they think it's maybe like a suppression of something. And I don't feel it's that way. It's just like you're, you're making your experience bigger than it is, you know, right? It, <laughs> or something. It, it, it just allows you to, to express yourself in ways that you don't normally express yourself. Right. Yeah. Or to even, even to feel something that you don't normally get to feel. Exactly. Yeah. Like just welcoming in like a, an emotion or, uh, you know, an experience into your mind and your body that, um, yeah, that you're not just getting in response to the world. You're kind of pulling it out of thin air. Just, it's awesome. It's, it's max creativity. You're creating, you know, a thrill or you're creating peace or you're creating curiosity, you know, whatever. Um, let's finally talk about food culture in your childhood. Well, I grew up in a Jewish household. My mother was a very good cook. So we used to have a lot of the old Eastern European style foods, you know, stuffed cabbage, uh, gefilte fish, kishka, uh, knishes, things like that which was just passed down by my grandparents. My grandmother on my mother's side was from Poland. My grandmother on my father's side was from Russia. So we used to have a lot of food that was influenced by the old country. Cool. Uh, Pierogi is a good example on the Polish side or um, Poroshki on the, on, on the Russian side. Um, the food was, you know, a lot of pickled uh, beets and smoked fishes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my mother and father being more modern, I mean, we'd also have things like, um, you know, steak and burgers and hot dogs. Yeah. My mother, at least once a month, made liver and onions, which was just something traditional in her family. It wasn't one of my favorites, yeah. but yeah. it was something I grew up with. Um, what did, what was the food? Did it mean anything to you at that age? Like, did it feel important or is that like a, a kind of passion that came later in your life? Well, the foods that I liked a lot were important. Yeah. (laughs) You know, things like blintzes, you know, I don't know what that is. So it's a crepe stuffed with either potato and Mm -hmm. cheese. That was a savory blintz or, or cheese with powdered sugar and compote of some kind of oh, berry yeah. over the top. We, we make those at the deli still, but you know, there was always favorites. Kanish. I loved Kanish. I still love Kanish. Yeah. So that's a baked potato um, appetizer. It's like lumpy garlic mashed potatoes yeah, inside of a pastry that you bake in the oven. Oh my gosh. It sounds amazing. It, it is amazing. So <laughs> things like that, I really loved and to this day, I have a craving for it. 
And it's kind of convenient that we have a Jewish deli now because yeah. we're making a lot of these things that we grew up with. I know. I w- I'm going to ask you all about that. Yeah, I just, I'm trying, I like to, I feel like I can ask better questions about your present if I yeah. understand some things about the sure, past. no problem. Um, yeah, I guess the only other thing I'm wondering is maybe whether you cooked with your mom ever or whether you have like fond memories of like eating with family, like, you know, um, if you have like social memories around food. Well, yeah, definitely. Um, you can just keep talking. I'm just, yeah, sure. I like to be able to watch it. So just wake it up. Being that we were, um, you know, a, a Jewish family, we would celebrate all the Jewish holidays, which were more or less surrounded around food. So Passover, there's the Seder, Rosh Hashanah, there's is the New Year, so you'd have the Rosh Hashanah dinner. Yeah. Uh, Yom Kippur, you're breaking the fast, and so you'd have a meal after you fasted. Hanukkah, latkes, lots of latkes at Hanukkah. So there was always religious, social um, gatherings, and of course, you know, we'd celebrate Thanksgiving and um, Fourth uh, of July, like typical Americans, barbecues in the backyard. My dad loved the barbecue. My mother pretty much was in charge of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. My mother did teach me how to cook. Cool. Gave me a, a good appreciation for what it takes to put a good meal together. And in fact, my skill set that I developed from my mother allowed me to get jobs working in restaurants, putting me through college later on. Wow. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. So let's now talk about this band, this garage band. <laughs> so I, I also love the idea of like children putting together a band. It just, it has so much like guts, you yeah. know, did it feel like that to you? Like, did you, did you feel, did you and your friends like feel serious about it? Like we're a band or like, Oh, we were it, rock stars for yeah. sure. How did you like, how did you feel? summon the kind of courage and permission to to feel that way oh because you know ego you know you start playing music you start you know each each of us played a little bit on our own but when we got together we thought we were making something that was so much more art yeah yeah well we didn't necessarily think of it that seriously but we definitely felt like the music was what was bigger and better you know deeper and sounding more and we're making lots of noise and attracting a lot of attention and people would, you know, we'd be practicing literally in the garage of one of my friend's house and, and people would, as they were walking by, we had sidewalk communities. So the garage door was open and people were, you know, out with their strollers or walking their dogs and they, they'd stop and listen to us. And we thought we're a big deal. That's, I mean, that is a big deal. Like I think this lesson, it's something that I, Again, like as a teacher, I'm, I'm always reflecting on these kinds of things. I think nowadays with the way that, um, you know, streaming has changed kind of music culture, I sometimes wonder like if my young students, it feels to me sometimes like they they don't know what music is for. <laughs> like, and not that it has to have, you know, one answer, but I feel like as a child, like performing in front of people yeah. and seeing their moods change. Right. That's so important. And I think, um, you know, in a, in a day and age where a lot of, you know, quote unquote performance happens digitally mm-hmm. and you don't see the reactions of people, you know, you maybe see likes coming in or comments, but you're missing that, you know, that tangible experience of watching someone mm-hmm. be pleased or moved by right. what you've written or what you're performing. 
um, I don't know, it feels like a loss, but I think that's really significant for a young creative to watch people stop and, you know, look at, turn and, and look at you and maybe smile, maybe clap. I can imagine that being like very, uh, yeah, formative. It was definitely, um, um, gratifying when people stopped and if they said, wow, that sounded really good. I mean, we didn't have big audiences when we started because, you know, we were basically just playing in the gra- little garage bo- for fun. Little boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Little boys. I, I don't think we actually had a gig until like it, we were in high school, juniors or whatever, and we got to play, you know, at a school. I know, love that you kept something. the band that long, though. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, they were... They, you know, we had different people in and out, but we did keep it together long enough to become the rainy days, the D-A-Z-E. I was going to say, what's the, oh, cute. The rainy days. Um, what, uh, who were like the, so you're a main personnel. Did you have like, in terms of people who aren't revolving, was there anyone else or was it kind of like your band? No, it was definitely, it wasn't my, it was our band. I mean, Sammy on guitar, me on keyboards. Um... Perry Steo on drums. Perry, what yeah. a classic name. Well, you know, it's, um, we lived in a neighborhood that was filled with Jewish people and Italians. Yeah. So, you know, we had like an Italian Jewish culture, which is kind of great because, you know, Jews and Catholics, you know, there's plenty of guilt to go around. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we so all. So you and Sammy, it was kind of your band. And then the, yeah, Sam, the rest of the guys kind of... Sammy was probably one of the mainstays. You know, okay. he he stuck around a while. Um, Whose garage were you practicing in? Norman's. Norman. <laughs> and But uh, Norman was a constant in the band? He, it's funny, he, he liked to do backup singing. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just that his parents had day jobs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So his his, his garage, garage was, free. was free during yeah. the day. Cool, cool. <laughs> okay. So at what age did you start kind of thinking of yourself thinking of creativity as something like crucial to your identity? And it's okay if it's much later, just I I'd like to know. Ooh. Well, I guess I had a, a pretty small group of friends. Um, we all had pretty similar interests. We all like to do things like play tennis. Um, we used to ride our bike from our homes two miles plus to the tennis courts. Cool. Uh, we used to explore. We used to build tree houses in the woods, which is about a mile away. So we used to have our little club in the woods. When, that's when I was a little bit younger, but still that helped create this this group of friends that were were close all those years. Sounds magical. It, it, it was. It's, it's just funny. It, it, well, funny and sad that I ended up, once I finished high school and then went to college, from college I started traveling and kind of left all those friends behind. Sure. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this is why I feel that it's such a victory to like, you know, like reclaim creativity as an adulthood. And, and it's part of why I like these childhood stories. Cause I feel like 
if those memories are poignant enough, like you're going to find your way back to it, you know? So, um, okay. So when you were in high school, did you add any mediums or did anything kind of shift in how you thought about your creativity? Well, let's see. <clears throat> I didn't really think that hard about creativity per se. It okay. wasn't like it, it was a main thing that I was focused on. I just happened to, okay. to, to do some, some sketching. My uncle gave me my first camera when I was about 14. Wow. Was, a whole new medium. Yeah, a, a new medium. It was uh, so I did a lot of black and white photography. I I learned how to develop film when I was in high school, and I started taking a lot of a lot of photos. Um, wow! And uh, I still have some of those photos in frames. Wow! In boxes, I I don't have them posted up uh, in, in my should, house, but I do have them hanging right. Well, at at some point, I'm in the process yeah. of of creating my music studio cool. in the house cool. now that the kids are gone i i can claim a room right. and make it into a music and and i'll be posting my photographs in there good good yeah so maybe i'm okay and wait i have one other question and then another question sure i don't need to preamble of i can course. just ask them yeah go for <laughs> um, it were you so i know you write music and you were writing lyrics were you doing any other writing were you writing poetry were you writing you know any sort of prose um, I used to write some poetry because I had a, an English teacher in high school that was really, really good. And she really got me into appreciating poetry, yeah. reading lots of poetry. Cool. And that inspired me to try and experiment with some poetry. I love it. Um, I can't think of anything outstanding that I wrote. I just remember that she was really excited about me coming up with something original. Cool. And it, it motivated me to keep doing it. And you were still doing sports too, right? Yeah, I was uh, back in those days. Um, I was still, I was pretty, bi I was tall for my age, but I was really skinny. Sure. So it wasn't like I was going to have a great, career playing football, though I did play a little bit of football in high school, but I was more successful in, in sports like tennis. Okay. And, um, you were busy. Well, yeah. Yeah. So the, what I'm, what I'm <laughs> noticing is like, you're doing so many mediums, you're spending so much time being creative, but that didn't feel like you weren't like kind of aware of that. Is that is that what no, you're it was saying? just it, it just, just being it a just kid. was yeah. just being a kid, but what what I found by being as busy in so many different things, I I always felt like I was a jack of all trades. Yeah, I could do lots of different things, and it inspired me to want to become expert at least at something. Sure. I get that. Yeah. So how did you decide like where to go to college, what to study? Like what was that chapter of your life like? Well, Rutgers is a state university in New Jersey and it was being a state university, it was less expensive. Sure. And it wasn't that far away from the house. So it, it wasn't like I was that far away from my family. I lived on campus. I wanted to get away. Yeah. But I was only a 20, 25 minute drive away net. from the house. Yeah, yeah exactly. Cool. Um, Rutgers, at the time, uh, my plan was to go 
to Rutgers and, and prepare myself so that I can become um, a physician. Okay. That was my initial game plan. Uh, family doctor Morris Berlin was kind of like Marcus Welby. He still did house calls. Cool. He, uh, he was the kind of guy that you, you always look forward to see Dr. Berlin. I love it. Yeah. You, you weren't afraid of Dr. Berlin. You actually enjoyed it because he was generally interested in you. And while he was treating you, he'd always talk to you and have a right. great conversation. So I wanted to be just like him. I love that so much. That's also kind of creative. Like yeah. seeing an adult that you admire and thinking like, yeah, yeah. I felt like that a lot as a child too. Right. Uh, my, my, my parents, I, I don't have a great relationship with my parents didn't, didn't and don't. Um, but, uh, I do remember being a little kid and looking at adults who I felt more kinship with uh-huh. and felt, um, and I remember thinking as a child, like, I'm going to try to figure out how to, how to be an adult, like, like that lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like Morris was one of those for you. Well, Morris was, um, He was very smart. He very quickly figured out what was wrong when things went wrong. Yeah. And he was very close, not only with my parents, but with my mother's parents as well. And my my grandparents, well, my grandfather on that side of the family um, had a lot of health issues. Mm. He had cancer, mm. um, and they were able to keep him going for a long time. Wow! But but he had cancer, and my mother's brother had kidney stones. Okay. So he was the primary care physician for both of those as well. So he so, was around a lot. So he was around a lot. I love that you. I love that the things that you're like gravitating toward. You know, even just as a kid, I feel like it says a lot. Like your values. Like he's really smart. And he's really nice and you like being around him, you know, and thinking as like a, is a young man, like that's a, those are good footsteps to follow into. Right. So what happened Um, with college? Well, I, you know, went to Rutgers and had a typical, you know, college experience where a lot of distractions. Yeah. Joined a fraternity. Sure. um, Tried to play sports in college, but. You know, the competition was a lot better than I was. Yeah, com- college is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I, I made it onto the, the, the tennis team, but there were lots of guys a lot better than me, so I, I, I was kind of down the sure, list. the roster. Yeah, so I played more doubles than anything else, which I wasn't used to because I was the captain of the high school tennis sure. team, you know. But um, Playing any bands? Uh, well, it's funny. So um, my roommate... Um, another Sam, uh, was a lead guitar player for a college band. Cool. And, uh, he used to practice all the time and I found it difficult to study cause he was always practicing. So I Sam. got for Sam. So, <laughs> so I got fed up and I said, well, if you're going to be playing guitar all the time, you might as well teach me how to play it too. Oh. Gosh, I and, love it. And so he taught me how to play guitar. Cool. That's where I picked up guitar. Wow. And that's like your main instrument now, right? That's my main yeah. instrument now. Cool. Yeah. 
And before I knew it, I had my own duo. We were in the Baba Baba background boys. Cool. <laughs> we, we played in these little restaurants where we were the background music. You and Sam. No, no, no. No, a different person. A, a harmonica player named Spencer. Oh, wow. So, harmonica and guitar. Yeah. So and you were singing too? Yeah, we were singing. Cool. We were playing like Cat Stevens and Eagles and stuff like that back then. So this was like in the 70s? Yeah, so I was in college. I graduated college in 74. Okay. So uh, probably the first two years I was learning guitar and probably my junior and senior year I was starting to play out. Okay. And what, and you were majoring in like a pre-med or biology right, or something? Right, pre-med. It was, okay. it was, I was a bio-sci is what they call okay, it. Okay, cool. And so when how were you as a bio-sci student? I thought I was pretty good. Yeah. You know, I thought I was doing good for everything except organic chemistry, which was the worst That's nightmare. It's a common tale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my little sister in law is in a OCHEM right now. Yeah. She's miserable. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Denny. <laughs> He, was, he looked like a Marine, and he smoked a big stogie while he was giving oh uh, his lectures. There were 1,500 of us. Back Holy then, cow. you know, you'd have these massive classrooms. And I can remember, so sophomore year, we had organic chemistry. And when he, when he got up on stage, he said, how many of you are bio-size? And so about a third of us raised our hands. Yeah. He says, well, I'll tell you what, look to your left, look to your right. They won't be here at the end of the term. <gasps> Whoa. <laughs> so he was kind of, <laughs> yeah. he was kind of warning us that this is going to be tough. Not, yeah. not like those, you know, kind of namby pamby bio sci right. courses that you're right. taking. This is right. the real deal. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I barely I've, got through it. Uh, but you did it. But I you did, did it. it. I got so through it. when you finished college, did you go to med school? Well, that was the sad story is that, um, being from New Jersey, there's only two med schools in New Jersey sure. with, between them, there were 350 seats between oh, wow. them. Yeah. And there were about 10,000 of us that would be applying every year to oh go to med gosh. school. So you wanted to go. I wanted to go. I yeah. applied and I applied to about four med schools outside the state of New Jersey. But since New Jersey med schools didn't accept very many out-of-state students, there wasn't very much reciprocity outside of New okay. Jersey. Okay. So if I couldn't get into Rutgers Med School or the state uni or uh, the, the, med the medical school of the state, it's called New Jersey School of Medicine. Okay. Okay. So those two med schools didn't accept me. So I decided to go, I had a three, six grade point average. Well, I thought that was good enough. Yeah. Medical school is tough, man. Yeah, my it was. little my little brother just started medical school. He's just in his second semester, and um, he was in like the ninety sixth percentile on his MCATs, and still I think only got accepted to one school. Yeah, well, yeah, I was in. I think that's right. If I was wrong, in the ninetieth percentile. I, I did good on the MCATs, and I had a three point six, but it wasn't good enough to get into the New Jersey med schools because wow. it was so competitive. So. Yeah. I thought, well, I guess I need to prove that I can get better grades. So I went to Drexel in Philadelphia to get a master's degree. Okay. And I got a 4.0. Wow. And what was your master's in? Biochemistry. Okay. And, um, but I met a neurosurgeon while I was in Philly who was a musician. Cool, cool. And I, I love that. Living in his basement. He rented out the apartment downstairs. Wow, and so that's I ended perfect. up living down there. And we became really good friends. And basically, he talked me out of wanting to be an MD. Holy cow. He said, with all the things that I like to do, he said, if you become an MD, you'll never do all those things. I 
love that advice. And I love that anecdote so much. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that principle? Like looking back? Well, I have no regrets of yeah. not going to medical school because right. I was planning on going to like Granada or something just to start my medical school career sure. so I can get a couple of years and then come back to the States and finish. But I ended up getting a job after my master's degree at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia doing cancer research. Okay. Uh, and one thing, you know, serendipity then just jumped in and took over. Okay. So... I, I was able to get an, uh, a National Cancer Institute grant, wow. and it came with a travel grant that allowed me to present a paper based on my research. Wow. And so I used that to go to Europe and present my paper in Europe. Cool. Where in Europe? Monte Carlo, of all places. Wait, where is Monte Carlo? Why don't I know? Monte Carlo is right in between France and Italy, right on the Mediterranean. Oh, my gosh. What a dream. Oh, it was great. And did you stay there for a while or did you just come back? Oh, no. I, I just stayed there to present the paper. Okay, okay. But I ended up sharing a room because I was on a typical low budget. Oh, serendipity's coming. Okay, yeah, I'm ready. this is serendipity. I'm ready. Yeah. So uh, I shared a room with, uh, with two Brits. Um, while we were in Monte Carlo because we were trying to save money. And uh, we we both were lucky in that we presented our papers early during the conference. Okay, okay. And we and so... Um, you got to play. John Garrard, who was one of... Rory and John Garrard were, were the two guys in my room. Uh, John and I ended up spending the rest of the conference hitchhiking to Italy and picking up girls. Awesome. In Ventimiglia, Italy, which is right across the border from Monte Carlo. So we got along really, really well. And, and he had a lab in London, and he basically told me, he said, if you want to take control of your career, mm. you need to have a PhD. Okay. You'll always be working for somebody else unless you have a PhD. So if you want to work for yourself... Why don't you come to my lab? I've got a grant that I can give you from Her Majesty, Princess Anne, wow. uh, in order to study the things that we study in my lab. And so I just went. Amazing. So where did this idea come from that you want to work for yourself? Like, was that a new idea? Would, was that an idea that he kind of presented to you? or He did presented you want... it. I wasn't okay. even thinking about cool. wanting to be my own boss. I figured I had a master's degree. I could just become a researcher. I can go work in a pharmaceutical company. I could work at a university. Yeah. I could be a lab rat. Plenty of options. Yeah. yeah. When he presented that idea to you, how did it feel? I said, wow, you know, I never thought of that before. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if I could have my own lab with my own people working for me. Yeah. So you went to London. So I ended up going to the University of London, cool. Chelsea College. That's funny. I just interviewed someone else who went to school in London and is here in Utah. Random. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well. Go ahead. So Chelsea College. So Chelsea College on the King's Road in Chelsea, which is right down from Kensington. It was a great little neighborhood. Living in London, I was there for eight years. It took me four years to get my doctorate. Uh, in medicinal chemistry. Wow. So, um, did you have ideas about what you wanted to do or did you just kind of know I want to do something for myself and I'm not sure what? Well, I, I thought that a good use of my medicinal chemistry would be to go work in the pharmaceutical industry okay. and design drugs. Develop drugs. Since I had that NCI grant, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I can design molecules that would block chemical carcinogens 
from um, attaching to receptor sites. Okay. So if we could have molecules that would attach to prevent the carcinogenic drugs from attaching, that's a way of preventing cancers. Like my mother was a smoker and my grandfather had cancer. My grandmother had cancer. My aunt Dottie had cancer. So, so I was thinking, well, wouldn't it be great if we can figure out a way to prevent smokers from getting cancer? So you're specifically thinking about lung cancers. Right. Okay. Lung and bladder and stomach and kidney. Okay. I mean, th- there was a whole bunch of those associated to my family smoking. Okay. So, so that was my idea. And anyway, but while I was at the university in London, serendipity, serendipity strikes again. I felt it coming. Yes. <laughs> so I end up working part time in the Drug Teaching and Control Center, which was the IOC, International Olympic Committee, hmm. certified laboratory in London. Okay. And they would do things like the Commonwealth Games, which was like the British Commonwealth had their version of the Olympics. Cool. And, uh, and games uh, that they would run in the UK, you know, between Wales, Scotland, and, sure. and, and some of the European competitions. The Pan Am Games were, were another one that, that they used to do the drug testing for. So I became a tech in this IOC-accredited laboratory. When you finished your PhD or during? During. During, okay. Yeah. Although I had a full scholarship, it was still an expensive city. Sure. So... It was nice having a part-time job where I can earn some extra money so I can enjoy the city a little right. bit. Um, so the fact that I ended up having this association with an IOC laboratory brought me more into the analytical chemistry side of things. Okay. Instead of designing drugs, I was trying to discover what molecules were in biological fluids okay. so that we can figure out what cheaters were using. Yeah, doing that kind of pre... Oh, I see. Okay, okay, okay. I see. Performance-enhancing drugs. Sure, sure, sure. So, so, I got, so I was developing methods and doing a lot of analysis, and we would work for the you know, Commonwealth Games and the Pan American Games and things like that. So I was doing a lot of that analytical chemistry, and we were developing new technology, which we ended up sharing with the IOC lab in Los Angeles just before 1984, which was when they started doing drug testing for the Olympics. Cool. Wow. Yeah. So it's timing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love it. So, so, um, the fact that they use some of our technology that we developed in London was, you know, a big deal. Yeah. We were developing methods that where we can drill down and actually figure out the structure of the chemicals that athletes were using. Right. We were the ones that kind of discovered how testosterone was being abused, how amphetamines were being abused, how narcotics were being abused by athletes back in those days. It was the beginning, but, you know, it was was nice to be there. Cool. And uh, that ultimately led led through a number of different uh, steps on how I ended up getting here to, to Utah. Because I ended up working for the IOC here. Okay building and running the Olympic laboratory in Atlanta for the 96 summer games. And then I was invited to come out here to Salt Lake city for the 2002 Olympic games. Wow. Okay. So there's this like 16 year period between 84, wait, 26 year period. No, 16. Well, yeah. So 
I was in London from 79 to 87. Okay. 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 And the work that we were doing in like 83, 84 ended up being used in Atlanta, LA. Okay. But that gave me the association with the American Olympic uh, Body. body. Right. And so when I eventually got back to the United States and I was working, uh, you know, for Roche at the time, that's when I got the invite to go down to Atlanta to help build an Olympic drug testing operation for the 96 games. Okay. So you were in Atlanta for a while? Yeah, I was there for eight years. Okay. And then... Do you want to say anything about, like, do you want to say anything about your creativity and your creative influences, like in London and in Atlanta, like such art cities. Okay. So while I was in Philly and Philly. (laughs) Yeah. So while I was in Philly, you know, I, I I was pretty heavily into the music scene. I was part of the Philadelphia folk society and I was involved in working at the Philadelphia folk festival, setting things up. And I met, and I met this guy, um, Joe Stead, from London who came over and I helped connect him in Philly with some of the people that gave him an opportunity to play at the folk festival. And he always said, if I ever get to London to look him up, what (laughs) I said, serendipity, this is all serendipity. I love it so much. What a great story. So, so even though I was, you know, while I was in Philly, I played, you know, at, at clubs and bars and stuff like that. Uh, uh, you know, with my uh, physician friend, yeah, uh, who was a, um, a musician. Yeah, he always he organized this thing called First Friday. So we'd have a group of people who, the first Friday of every month, we'd meet at somebody's house. Wow! And we'd bring food over. Food. And we would jam. Cool. Until the sun came up. Wow. And it was great because it would just spread throughout the house and, you know, people were in different rooms playing different music and, you know, everybody looked forward to the first Friday and it was by invitation only. Cool. But, you know, that was just part of, you know, my, uh, my musical experience in, in Philly was probably where I, I really flourished. Yeah. I mean, that sounds so beautiful. I, I'm like, I'm on the I'm on like the cusp of a question, but I'm not sure like exactly how to word it, but maybe I'll kind of say it this way. I grew up in um, Mesa, Arizona in a really, really conservative community. My Mm -hmm. family was LDS. Uh, My family is LDS. I'm no longer LDS. Um, And, and also just, it it just was a small conception Mm -hmm. of the world. Um, And then I'm, I went to the university of North Texas for my jazz degrees And even just that little change, I mean, that's not even anywhere near as big of a change as moving to London, but it, it blew my mind. Like I just, it made, it, it made me kind of have this idea that the world was bigger than I had thought. And I'm, I'm imagining you must've experienced some of this in all your new places. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'd just love to hear your thoughts on on that. Well, each, each of the places where I spent a lot of time, um, definitely influenced me, especially on my music. Philadelphia, home of Chubby Checker. Right. um, Had a really lively music scene downtown. Yeah. Clubs and uh, nightclubs, bars. I mean, whether it was Duffy's or or Dunbar's or or, or whatever it was, 
where we were playing. Uh, there was plenty of places to play. First Friday gave us an opportunity to get you know a pretty big group of people that we became really good friends with. It's a whole ethos. Right. It, it was a community of musicians. Many of them were members of the Philadelphia Folk Society. Yeah. Um, which did a lot more than folk, but that was just the name of the, the group. And we would have a festival every year outside of Philadelphia, but the Folk Society would promote uh, various small, intimate concerts all throughout the year, cool. downtown Philly, um, you know, out in the suburbs, just outside Philly. So I ended up meeting a ton of musicians. Yeah. Um, the person who probably influenced me the most in my music was this fellow, Mike Miller, who was this big, gregarious, burly guy. kind of looked like, um, oh, what's his name? John Goodman. Well, yeah, he was like John okay. Goodman. <laughs> I um, really wanted to guess right. That would have yeah, been satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> but but he, he, was, he was a hilarious guy. He, he was, although... I found out later he was seriously depressed, but, but we never knew that because he's always, yeah. always so funny. And he's, he, he, he knew a, a million songs, right. you know, he'd always go, you know, we'd start playing somebody. Oh, 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 oh I, I, I know something that they did. And boom, he'd start playing the song. Yeah. But he sat down with me and taught me a lot that I didn't know on guitar and yeah. expanded my, um, my, my uh, taste in music sure, way beyond huge. the kinds of things that I was doing. He introduced me to blues guitar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. Like, and I just feel like this, like, I want there to be so much more of this creative thinking and there are different ways to get it. You know, one way is to be exposed to different yeah. kinds of thinking, you know, both in terms of like just your awareness of what exists, your awareness of like what good taste is, you right. know, or your kind of individual beliefs about that. And also just a, a more broad, you know, a culture or like a value system, mm -hmm. you know, if, if your only experience is in like a really strict kind of value system where all we're caring about is, yeah. you know, excellence on the right. instrument, you know, that's really different from a value system where it's all about community or a value system where it's about originality. You know, I don't know. It, I, I just feel like you must have such a wealth of knowledge about those kinds of things. Well, I, I can say that being surrounded by people who loved music more than they loved anything else. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody had their day jobs and, you know, we may have enjoyed our careers, but when we got together to play music, it was something special. It's kind of sacred. And, yeah. and you, you know, there were people who played flute and piano and guitar and banjo. And I became really good friends with the Britain sisters who were like Bonnie Raitt times two. Okay. 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 Two amazingly talented blues guitar playing singing ladies. Cool. Bonnie Raitt, what a gift. I mean, she's amazing, but just picture two of them. Two, yeah, times two, yeah. Right. Cool. So, so I got to be good friends with them, and that's where my, my love for the blues, you know, really well, uh, matured. Yeah. Uh, or at least started to mature. You know, I've come a long way since then, but... Uh, well, I mean, you did live in Atlanta. And yeah, yeah. I, and so I went from... Uh, like there, this folk culture. This folk culture, and then learning the blues... Unfortunately, my experience in Atlanta was not very musical. Okay. Um, that is sad. Yeah. What was your, was your experience in Atlanta? Was there, was there food culture development? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a great eating city. It 
I, yeah, I've never been there, but I, I have gathered this. But you have to understand that when you're from the th- tri-state area, yeah. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Philadelphia, yeah. those are great eating places sure. too. I mean, you've got an Italian neighborhood, Polish neighborhood, yeah. German food, whatever you're looking for is all around you. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it was having moved to Philadelphia... It was a good eating city, you know, learned a lot more about pizza and cheesesteaks than yeah. you could ever shake a stick at. <laughs> uh, there was a market in in South Philly where you used to go and just walk down the street and there's vendors on both sides of the street and you buy your fresh vegetables and, you know, the vendors would give you samples of things to oh eat. And, and it was great. A dream. So, so and, and I worked in my first restaurant as a cook in Philadelphia. Wow. Were there any... Um, art culture things that you liked about London? Oh, London. Everything. I mean, yeah. the museums. I mean... That's so, like visual art culture. So, well, you had... You had you had more than just... I mean, you had every kind of art culture. I mean, right. I was there 79 to 87, and, you know, there was a, a, a big influence of... Uh, you know, rock bands like Led Zeppelin, right. Rolling Stones, oh Beatles. They yeah. were still, you know, active w- way back. Beatles were kind of slowing down, but the Stones and Pink Floyd. I, I went to a Pink Floyd concert. Are you kidding me? At the Albert Hall where they had that big pig floating oh all, all over us. I mean, that's where I was introduced to Pink Floyd and Phil Collins. Holy cow. And, and I've got a story for okay, you. Okay, I'm ready. Um so Joe Stead, back in London, um, he met me at the airport when I landed because I told him I was coming and he picked me up at the airport and he immediately took me before I even had a chance to settle in and even figure out where I was going to live. Yeah. He took me out to his recording studio in Wales. What? <laughs> Random. <laughs> yeah. No. So he picked me up and he says... Uh, he asked me if, if I was had any plans for the weekend. I says, well, not really. I just got to grab my stuff and kind of figure out where I'm going to live. He says, well, how about if we go out to the recording studio and we'll take care of that on Monday? Yeah. So off we went to a wow. recording studio in Wales. Yeah. On the way out, we stopped in Birmingham and uh, he, we picked up a curry. Cool. I never had Indian food before. Yeah. But he asked, do you like spicy food? I go, sure. I put... Chili's on my pizza all the time. Yeah. I never even knew I how also, hot food could be. I also distinctly remember the very first time I had Indian food and also felt my brain explode. Well, my hair used to be straight. Yeah. The food was so hot that it. my earwax melted. Oh my gosh. That's no, awesome. I could hardly catch my breath when yeah. I put this food in my mouth. Anyway, so I ended up um, in a recording studio getting on an album that he was recording. Are you kidding me? Playing mandolin, which I never played before. Oh my god! He said, "That's crazy." Can you can you learn this on mandolin? We need a mandolin track. So he handed me a mandolin. He said, "Go upstairs and learn this. Play around. Play around, and, and we'll record you tomorrow." Wow! And uh, so I've got a mandolin credit on an album. <laughs> That's insane. Did you did you um, see any Broadway or theater while you were in London? Off, well, you know what they call fringe theater. Okay. I didn't see that much. Regular theater, because it was kind of expensive, yeah, and yeah. I don't know students, but, but if you would buy the City Limits magazine, 
which came out once a week, you know, they, they'd always have what's going on. And so right. they'd have music, they'd have theater, they'd have art museums, pages and pages wow. and pages of stuff that would go on. So we would go to uh, fringe theater all the time. Okay. And, and it's intimate. Like the theater may only be as big as a little coffee shop. Yeah. And there may be only 50 of us sitting there watching you know, it. whatever it was. And we were really close. Have you always been like kind of emotionally brave and like open in this way? Or were the, did you feel that that openness to new experiences like kind of grew as you had new experiences? Does that question make sense? Yeah. I, I've, I've never limited myself by saying, now nah, I'm afraid to do something. Yeah. I've always, you know, serendipity requires that you be a risk taker. Right. When, when, a, when a situation prevents itself, you need to be able to say, yeah, that sounds like something I'd really yeah. like to do. Yeah. I think the reason I'm asking is like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, I just feel very curious about this. So again, like when I moved to Texas, I think... I was so unaware of how big the world was that I don't, I don't, I think I expected, you know, moving from my tiny little conservative town in, in Arizona. I mean, it, it's, it's not a small town, but it's small minded. Maybe, um, that's my opinion anyway, um, to this, you know, liberal haven in North Texas. It's a very liberal little pocket. It's like kind of like Austin, but it, it's in North Texas. I think I just assumed it would be kind of similar to my home. Like I, cause I, I was so unaware that I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that it would be different. Mm -hmm. And then when it was different, I kind of felt like, well, this is wonderful. Mm -hmm. What other different things are there and how can I get more of them? Exactly. So I'm wondering whether it was like that for you. Like you went places and then you were like, oh, there's this, what else is there? Or if you always kind of had a sense that the world was big. My mother was well-read. Sure. And so we used to have a lot of discussions and, and my, where I got my information from about the world were from people like Walter Cronkite, David yeah. Brinkley, Chet Huntley, people who exposed us to lots of stuff, watching TV. And my mother, even though she never went to college herself, thought of herself as being very worldly. Kind of worldly yeah. This is why I was asking before if you like, if there was discussion, but it sounds like there was. There was. We yeah. talk about Ideas current events and, and things, you know. That's so important. New, New Jersey was a more liberal state. Sure. Um, well, and just culturally, I mean, being in a neighborhood that's like Jewish, Italian, I think even something like that yep. has to give you some clues. Right. Or your dad being in the war. I mean, yeah, there. I I can see there are, there are clues. Right. Um, okay. And then tell me about culturally in terms of in terms of art culture, including food culture. Um, did you gain anything in Atlanta? Atlanta was a good eating city. Um, you know, fried green tomatoes. Um, I also remember the first time I had fried green tomatoes. It was in Louisville. Right. And yeah. I still think about it. Yeah. 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 Okra. Never had okra before yeah. since I moved out, you know, until I moved down south. Varsity hot, hot dogs. That was like right near. Um, what about like Cajun food? Not so much in Atlanta. Okay. Um, Atlanta was more southern cuisine. Um, lots of mac and cheese and, mm. of course, Atlanta. Every. Peach this and peach that. Right. Yeah. You know, lots and of peach cobbler and kind of a different barbecue culture, probably too. Georgia barbecue is yeah. one of the best, but it's very different. It's a mustardy yeah. kind of barbecue. 
but they take their barbecue seriously. They take their meat seriously. Yeah. Um, the, the, I, I really enjoyed, um, the introduction to Southern cuisine. And what was nice is living in the neighborhoods there, you know, Southern hospitality, everybody was super friendly and we'd have, uh, barbecues at each other's houses in the neighborhoods all the time. I felt that living in Texas too. Like, uh, you know, the, the university is very not Texan. Like Mm -hmm. the university is, you know, most of the faculty aren't from Texas. Uh, most of, even most of the student population in the jazz program is not Mm -hmm. from Texas. It's like 80% out of state or something. Mm -hmm. But because I was still LDS while I lived there, Mm -hmm. I did get to know, like I was kind of in like the community Mm -hmm. outside of the university too. And uh, I have mixed feelings about my college experience being like overlaid by like a religion that I'm no longer a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do, I do and, and did appreciate that piece, you know, being able to spend time like eating and being in a community with, you know, um, kind of parental figures from church mm-hmm. who, um, who lived there was, was valuable to me. Right. Well, with, Living uh, in the South uh, was a very different experience for me than living anywhere else in the States. Interesting. Um, it, you know, the, it was a much more open, friendly community. You lived in a, de- uh, uh, a subdivision that had a pool a- at the center mm. and tennis courts, and everybody would get together and we'd all yeah. meet up at the pool. And different. it was just very social. Cool. Barbecues at the pool, barbecues at people's houses. So we ended up having a large group of friends. Um, like I said, I didn't do very much music while I was down there because I was so focused. I was brought down to Atlanta to set up for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty intense focus, uh, f- for me. Were you married then? Yeah. I, I when did got, you meet your, your wife? so I, I got married just before I left New Jersey. Okay. Oh, okay. So I had come back from London. I was hired by Roche to set up drug testing labs, but it was employment drug testing, not not sports testing or anything. Okay. So we were doing employee drug testing in, in New Jersey. Met my, my wife in a bar. And the rest is history. Uh, got offered the opportunity to go down to Atlanta okay. to, to set up the Olympic uh, lab there. Smith Klein was a laboratory that offered me the opportunity. They had no Olympic drug testing experience. Okay. So they brought two of us down, Barry Sample and myself, um, in order to create this thing. Um, so they can have that feather in their cap that they uh, were able to participate yeah. in the Olympics. And so there was a lot of pressure. And then after the, the Olympics, you know, um, there was a lot of report writing, things that we had to do to complete our responsibilities for uh, for the games. And uh, Is your wife a creative too? Uh, in the kitchen, absolutely. Cool. She's an yeah, amazing earlier cook. Earlier, when you said we have a deli, I thought I wondered who that we was, and now I know it's she, your wife. She's the deli. She's the cook. Okay, cool. Cool. She's the chef. She has all that Eastern European. Her family is all Polish. Okay. So she grew up cooking European. Okay, I love it. And so you guys were aligned in these kind of creative vision. Like, she, she's from Jersey. Yep. Okay. Jersey girl. And then you moved to Atlanta together. And then how did you feel about moving to Salt Lake? 
Um, I was all excited about it because it was another Olympic opportunity. I was offered a really good position to take over um, a, a scientific business that would pay me a lot better than I was making in, in Atlanta. And I'd be in charge, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'd be in charge in, uh, in Salt Lake. Plus, I got the opportunity to, you know, uh, collaborate with people here on the Olympics. It wasn't my laboratory this time. I was just yeah. here to help get them certified cool. as a consultant. Um, but um, my wife was scared. I mean, she, she had this, you know, we all have impressions of what it's like to live in Utah, Salt Lake city, you know, the world outside of Utah has this perception of it being a really strange place. It is a strange place. I mean, I, when I moved here, I was still totally active in the LDS church and I still had a really hard time with the idea of, of moving here. Like I, I distinctly remember like driving, you know, my, my husband was driving the moving, the, yeah. we had, he had, we rented a Utah U-Haul and attached, you know, one car to it. And I was driving behind yeah. in our other car. And I just, I distinctly remember like seeing the welcome to Utah sign and just like sobbing oh. in my car. Well, <laughs> it's funny yeah. you say it cause we had in, in Atlanta, we had LDS friends. Okay, that's that helps maybe. Right. No, I hope, so I hope it helped. But the thing yeah. is, we didn't think anything about LDS oh, or Mormon or anything about? because they were a small religion, just like like Episcopalian oh, and Presbyterian and Jews. You didn't think and about that in Atlanta, but they were just like neighbors, like yeah. were like normal neighbors, right? Everybody yeah. was the same. Yeah, but but my friend Ed told me he says. LDS who live outside of Salt Lake are very different than LDS that live in Utah. I even knew that, which is why I was scared to move to Utah, you know, like I, that's why I felt like that. Cause I think I've really, I think I, I think I really liked being LDS in, in that little city in Texas that I lived in. Cause I felt like I could kind of contextualize it in a way that worked for kind of my values and I wonder, you know, I wonder if I sensed that moving to Utah would lead to a dismantling of my faith. You know, <laughs> I wonder if like somewhere in my guts, I yeah. like thought that might happen. Well, whenever you move, I mean, I'm Jewish. My wife's Catholic. My kids are cashews and we're all nuts. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> but, but, you know, we went from Jersey down to uh, Atlanta. And so now we're surrounded by Baptists. And we got along with them just great, even though we had some trepidation. Sure. And so we figured if we can survive and flourish amongst the Baptists, how bad could it be in Salt Lake City? Yeah, yeah. So how old were you when you moved here? Uh, So we moved here in 2000. I was like 48. And you had kids? Yeah, I had two kids then. We... We had a newborn. I had a four-year-old and a newborn. Okay. So tell me, like, when you, so you moved back to Salt Lake, tell me how creativity, both in terms of music and food and, you know, dreaming up the deli, like, how did it happen? Oh. We were so disappointed with food when we got here. Yeah. I mean, we got here and said, this was the, like, the kingdom of the franchise restaurant. You know, McDonald's. It's disgusting. It's really bad. The, the food, when we moved here in 2000, 
made us feel like I'm glad we know how to cook. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So I was involved in biotech. I had this forensic um, analytical chemistry company, Northwest Toxicology. Uh, As my paying job, I was consulting with the Olympics. Um, My boss was Chinese. So he introduced me to some Chinese places downtown that the Chinese people uh, frequent. So at least I know I can get good Chinese food here. And then, you know, slowly but surely, you know, if you search for it, you'll find some good restaurants, but you had to search for it. Yeah. You know, there weren't that many, like my secretary, I asked her, well, I want to take my wife out on a date. Where's a nice little Italian that I could take her to? And she said, well, have you heard of Olive Garden? Oh, I go, no. no, no, no. I'm from Jersey. I don't know what <laughs> that is, is but that's not about. Italian. Yeah. Don't you have a little mom and pop shop? Well, what's a mom and pop shop? Oh, it's so Utah. It makes yeah. me want to cry. Yeah. yeah. So so eventually we discovered Reno's, which okay. was on Parley's, and that was getting a little bit better. But, but then uh, about 10 years into living here, we started seeing people like Scott Evans and Ryan Louder start to open owner-operated mm. um, one-off restaurants like Pago mm. and um, what's a uh, Copper Onion, yeah, yeah, and stuff like. I went so, there last week. Right, so those those started appearing. Yeah, and after five years at Northwest Talks, we ended up selling that to uh, LabCorp, not LabCorp, Lab One, who was then bought by LabCorp to form Quest. Okay. And so, not LabCorp. It doesn't matter, or whatever. (laughs) If it matters to you, you can think of it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It was, what's the name? I wish I could help. Yeah. It it was another (laughs) one of the labs that that was in New Jersey. Okay. It started with, with an M. But they, they became Quest. Anyway, uh, Quest Diagnostics. So I had moved on and taken over a genetics company. Okay. And we ended up selling that after four years. And um, then I kind of worked myself out of a job. Okay. You know, because there was no need for my particular mm-hmm. skill set in yeah. Utah anymore. Oh, wow. And we loved Utah, you know. Oh, you did. Good. Uh, avid skier. 88 sure. golf courses with an hour of my house. Yeah. You know, hiking, camping, biking. You can do every, you know, it's we true. like all that yeah. outdoor stuff. My kids love being outdoors. You know, they were very athletic. I, I, I put them on the um, snowbird ski team when they were six years old wow. each, you know, when they each turned six. They have a great program where they developed them. Each of them did really well. Both of them got invites to train with the U.S. Wow, ski team. awesome. Because they did really good. And and I've been skiing, you know, a, a long time. So when I came here, it was like the mountains right there. I was getting in 100 days a year skiing. Oh, my gosh. You know, yeah. early on. Can't do that quite as much as anymore. But after selling the second company... There was nothing really for me to do. I tried to consult, but Utah's a tough place to consult mm-hmm. because people like help, but they don't like getting invoices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So after four years of trying to, I, I worked for Huntsman. I actually helped uh, Governor Huntsman uh, write the economic development plan for biotech in Utah. Wow! 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 Was it a, a cancer institute back then? No, no, That's not new. the Huntsman. I wa- worked for Governor John Huntsman. 
Okay. 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 So, okay. So, I didn't realize those were separate huntsmen's. Well, they're not. I mean, the Huntsman Institute is basically named after Huntsman Senior. Okay. Because he's given so much money yeah. to create the Cancer Institute. But but Huntsman Junior, the governor, hired me to write the, um, what, what they call BioVision. Okay. To help develop the biotech industry in Utah. So this is like... We're talking like this has been like 10 years worth of stuff. Are you doing any music things during that time? Or is this like dormant? Dormant. Still dormant. Okay. Dormant in Atlanta. Okay. Dormant while I had my biotech career here. Okay. Okay. Did did it bother you? Like, was it was it tugging on you? Uh, it was frustrating. I, you know, I found myself hardly ever pulling out my guitar or sitting at a piano. This is so interesting. I mean... Maybe it's not, but this idea of this neurosurgeon telling you, like, don't go to med school, you'll stop doing all the things you love, but you kind of stopped doing music anyway for a period. Well... But you were doing other things you love? I was career building, so sure. it took a back seat. Sure. Um, I always had the interest in music. I constantly went to concerts and things like that, but I wasn't actively participating. I did not fall into a group of friends in Atlanta that were musical. Okay. So that was probably my main thing. I yeah. was surrounded by tech people, biotech people. Okay. And were you active in teaching music and um, implementing, you know, music culture with your kids? I tried. Yeah. Just even just in terms of listening, they didn't, they didn't take, it didn't take. They, oh, they love oh. listening. I yeah. mean, my kids. That's all I mean. Like just having music yeah. be a part of your family culture. Yeah. My my kids are super into you know seventies sixties rock and cool. roll. They they know about as much as about Led Zeppelin as I do. Cool. Yeah. So so yeah, and and they they now are big fans of music. They're they're constantly listening to music. So during this kind of like dormant period, did you did you think about creativity? Like, did you feel like your work was creative? Um. My work was creative because we were creating new things. Yeah. We were setting up a laboratory, brand new, developing brand new technologies, having to try and keep up with the cheaters on the street, yeah. trying to figure all that out. So from a scientific point of view, it was very creative. Do they feel different to you? It's a different part of your brain. Really? Okay. Yeah. Because very analytical. I mean, the scientific method going through trying to... Uh, fig figure out what you see, try and understand it, and then try and figure out how you can manipulate it so that you can um, create. Sure. Um, I bet there are some musicians who feel that way about it, like people who are in like musicology or I don't know. I'm sure some jazz musicians feel analytical about perhaps what they're doing. There's some musical. I mean, music is can be very mathematical, right? I mean, and it, math can be very creative, right? I think, yes. Well, that's why I'm wondering, like, what it kind of, if it if it felt to you like the same kind of internal need was being met, like in your work. I I never used to f think of it that way. It was just it it was consuming, all consuming because we were up against some some pretty mm. stiff uh, deadlines in getting ready for the Olympics. And then the, the drug testing laboratory that I helped set up and create, well, I didn't set it up. I took over and helped grow their business. Um, 
was a heavily regulated industry. Um, so we were constantly having to make sure that we met the quality standards yeah. to be able to do what we're doing. The little laboratory here in Salt Lake ended up being recognized as one of the top laboratories in the oh, whole country. Utah has some little gems. Yeah. Like there are some things in Utah that are like truly excellent. Well, we were the little train that could. I love it. Okay. I have a kind of a weird question. Sure. So my podcast is called Artifice because it's a cool word, but also because I find like art identity and kind of the internal workings of creativity, whether you're thinking that creativity is like in the arts or whether it's just creative thinking, creative living. Living, you know, um, I'm interested in, in creative development and I'm interested in creative identity and artistic identity. When you think of like who you, Michael, are as an artist, as a creator of artistic things versus like who you are as a scientist, do they feel like the same identity or do you feel like you kind of step into different identities? I feel like I feel like I transitioned from one kind of creativity into another kind That's of creativity. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. So That's my, what it sounds like to me, like very fluid. The science creativity was extremely structured. It, it, we had to meet um, certain requirements for fellow scientists to believe that what we were doing was meaningful. Sure. To be able to... Uh, get permission to do contract drug testing. We had to meet requirements while we were developing new methodologies. You know, I've got three patents on things that cool. that we developed while here in Salt Lake City. Very um, creative. Yeah. yeah. So we moved from urine drug testing into saliva drug testing into hair drug testing, okay. and we were at the cutting edge front end of all of that. Cool. So um, your creativity was like satisfied in that way. Exactly. Okay. Here's another kind of weird question. So a another thing, like you know, when I think about what I'm doing with this podcast, like I said at the beginning of our talk, some of it is just like for me, like I like getting to know members of my community mm -hmm. and like. It, you know, I can get sometimes feeling like the world is a little small and like this, you know, the, this exercise, like it just keeps my brain kind of active in a way that is good for me. But I think also I have a belief that creative people know something about humanity that is important, which is that there are different perspectives. There are different ways to think about things. We can, you know, we have different options even just thinking about, you know, my neighbor who I don't know if I get along with, or, you know, I think creatives think differently about differences. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes I, what am I trying to say? I think I'd like for people who are not in creative professions to feel like they can exercise creativity. So I, I'm really interested in this idea that creativity is not connected to a medium. It's not connected to like a, a, a type of profession. It's not connected to a location. And I guess first I just love your ideas on that. And then maybe I have another question too. Sure. Well, I totally agree with your point about creativity is not tied to anything specific. And I think that in particular gives you some freedom to do things and think things and create things, Pathways make things um, that, that take you 
out of your comfort zone, yeah. at, at, at your routine. So creativity gets you out of your routine. So, you, you know, you might, you know, do certain things at work uh, that you have to do because you're being paid to do it. And, and there's expectations that you, you uh, perform, right. that, that you develop, which is, could be some creativity at work. But if you allow yourself to be creative outside of that environment, it frees you up to experience so much more yeah. um, visually, um, acoustically. Yeah. Um, emotionally. Emotionally, you know, you can, each of your senses can benefit from out, from expanding your creativity outside totally. your box. Totally. Yeah, I really believe this. Like, you know, if you're a person who never grew up listening to, you know, folk music and you're like, nah, I only like stuff that's really produced. And then you learn, you learn how to, you know, you're exposed to bluegrass and you love that. I think that that stretching of your brain might also make you open to new ideas, like, you mm -hmm. know, being more environmentally conscious mm -hmm. or understanding, you know, privilege. Like, I feel like it, you, it's the same, like you're strengthening the same kind of neural pathway or something. Well, I always believe um, when getting to know people, this is actually strange to have you asking all the questions because... Yeah. I would always tell people who come to me for advice, like if they're on a job interview, ask people questions. Yeah. Find out more about them. Yeah. Because you'll find that the interview goes much better if you're exploring and probing and trying to find things out because it, it helps you uh, having a really good conversation. It's not yeah. just all one way where you're just answering questions. Right. But... Um, Using creativity to to look at a situation. I mean, here in Utah, um, you know, uh, you're surrounded by a lot of conservatism. Yeah. Only because there, you know, it's a Republican-controlled state. Um, people think they already know better. Yeah. So you find things like now this whole transparency thing that they're trying to do in the legislature where they're telling yeah. teachers how to do their job. Totally. But for somebody like me, you know, to look at that situation, how can we get, and I had this frustration when I was working with Huntsman to get yeah. people in the legislature to think about technology. Well, how people in Utah grow up either agriculturally mm. or they grew up in, in small business in Utah. Yeah. So when they become legislators, they're not really that well-versed on technology. Exactly. Yeah. So or how, art or right. education. How do you yeah. get, how do you get them to think about it so that they'll fund it? Right, right, right. You know? Yes. Yeah. So totally. I'm totally with you. So I'm, I was always challenged with how can I get somebody to be interested in what I'm interested in? Yeah, yeah. And, and so yeah. You, you would use your creativity to try and right. try and find a way to um, find a pathway. Right. How, how do I develop a rapport with this person yeah. so that they're more likely to listen to what I have to say? Yeah, yeah. And I wish people could understand that you know, 
I think sometimes people who think in these kind of binaries and black and white assume that everyone's thinking in binaries and black and white. And of course that's not even what it is. It's like, you know, I don't need you to agree with me, but like, can we talk? Like, can we realize that there are other ways? Like Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, this or this, it's maybe like some other thing, or maybe it's one of 10 other things. Yeah. Do you feel like creativity is an important, like an essential part of your identity? Absolutely. I mean, especially now. I mean, if you actually even look at the T-shirt I'm wearing, I'm wearing a KRCL T-shirt because right now I'm in a part of my life where I'm spending an awful lot of my time doing music. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way that it's just been like popping in and out. But what I'm hearing you saying is that like the creativity hasn't been popping in and out. Like the medium kind of shifts, but you're creative and you always have been and you always will be. Well, I've been lucky to be in positions where I can use creativity, Yeah. whether it's at work in biotech or whether it's been with music Yeah, it sounds or, like you do it cooking. with people, too. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no that, that, feel free. It's yeah. a conversation. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, the, so uh, Atlanta and... The beginning of my stay here in Salt Lake were were very focused in biotech. While I was really um, all in in biotech, the creativity that I was using was applying my understanding of the technology that I I was involved in to... Uh, build bit to to build to, to take the drug testing business was bleeding. I helped turn that business around, turn it into a profitable business, which allowed us to sell that company. Cool. Then I did the same thing for a genetics tools company, wow. where we turned it around. It was bleeding, and we turned around and ended up having Roche buy the company, wow. where I started my biotech wow. career. But then, after I decided that uh, consulting in Utah just wasn't cutting it for me, there just wasn't enough people that I could sell my expertise to in Utah, I had to get on planes a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the people who wanted my expertise were outside of Utah, and sure. I didn't want to be, I had young kids, I didn't want to be on a plane. So um, I turned to my wife and I said, Look, it's your turn. I, I've run two companies. What do you want to do? I love that. She uh, grew up in a family bakery. Wow. She knew the business. So she knew the business. Awesome. So she had the uh, food service experience. Cool. I ran companies. Yeah. So I had the business side of it. Plus, I had a good appreciation for Eastern European cuisine and uh, and food in general because, you know, I, I'd worked in restaurants, I'd worked in hotels, putting myself through college. But... But um, with her expertise, you know, I turned around and said, what do we, you want to do? She said, well, I don't want to, you know, there's no way we're going to get up at two in the morning anymore. So there's no way I'm doing bakery again. Yeah. So I said, what else do we know from Jersey that's yeah. missing here? Yeah. And we both looked at each other and said, there's no deli here. Yeah. And that's at the time when Eva opened up downtown and yeah. Copper Onion and Pago and some of the other owner-operated places. Um, so 
it gave us a little courage to think that if we decide to do a restaurant, you know, maybe now's a good time. Yeah. Um, so we started looking for um, locations and the planets started lining up. Yeah, there's that serendipity again. Yeah, exactly. She follows you. <laughs> she did in this case, which was a good thing because it turned yeah. out to be pretty good business. But wow. we found a location that was near the largest synagogue in Utah, cool. in between the U and Westminster. So there were a lot of people who moved to Utah and settled in those neighborhoods. Right. So they had a yearning for the foods that they grew up with right. that they couldn't find. Oh my God. So like I said, the planets all lined up. Yeah, and it's so we, beautiful. And we found um, our location and we're open a year later and it's been a rocket ride ever since. How many years? 10 years now. Wow. Wow. And you made it through the pandemic. We made it through. Yeah. We actually flourished through through the pandemic. The Lots only takeout. Yeah. So yeah. we we had a turn on a dime. We had to turn it into a takeout business yeah. at the beginning, and then we uh, so so we built a website overnight. Wow. I had a buddy of mine who uh, helped me, and we turned on online ordering within two days of being closed down by uh, the powers that be. Yeah. And so we went online and we were doing to go only. We we're bringing, you know, you would order your food and tell us what car you have and we'd bring the food out to your car. I love it so much. I want my listeners to be hearing, like, I'll just, you know, draw attention to like some of the thoughts that I'm having. I want my listeners to be hearing one, a story of so much resourcefulness, like just throughout your whole life, like just kind of, I mean, it might, it, I don't know if it seems like resourcefulness to people, but just having that curiosity of like, who's around me? What can I learn here? What can I do? Like, that seems like a pattern in your life. Um, and I think that's very creative and it's like something important to remember as a principle. And also I, I love, I love your story also because it's, it, it, um, it demonstrates such a flexibility. You know, I think I, I talk to a lot of people in my life who, I, mean, I think we all do, who mourn a loss of creativity in their lives. Mm -hmm. They, you know, say things like, well, I used to be a dancer when I was young, or, you know, I, I've always wanted to write. And they just think like, eh, but I can't, I'm in this other thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I love, I love stories of people just finding a way. And I don't think it requires starting a business. You know, it could look like so many things, but I don't know. I, I really, I, it sounds like these kind of creative values are like, um, present in every chapter of your story, which is awesome. I think it was Einstein that says a missed adversity is opportunity. Yeah. You yes. Know? So you just have to be open allow yourself to look at a situation say okay what what do we need to do yeah or what could we do you know instead of looking at why not um what else is there what yeah, could we try exactly yeah actually i was just talking to my therapist about this yesterday because <laughs> i'm um you know i don't know my my i feel like i see myself as being in like the middle or even the beginning of like my own story like mm -hmm. i i hope that i'll look back in you know five ten years from now and be like wow that was a time yeah. um you know today is the first day of the rest of your life i i really believe that yep. and you know some of the things that i'm that i'm trying to work on in my own you know um i was raised in a really difficult environment emotionally and i i I'm at a point in my life now where I think I'm safe enough. Like my husband is wonderful and I, you know, we're 
the financial stability, like I'm safe enough that I can kind of look at some of the maybe maladaptive behaviors that mm-hmm. I, that I learned as coping mechanisms and survival skills as a child and start to dismantle them, which is terrifying work. Mm-hmm. You know, it scares me a lot and I'm, I'm pretty aware of it, but I'm also very scared of it. And I, I was telling my therapist yesterday that I have been having some new kind of, I don't know that they're light bulbs, but curiosities, like just new kind of like, you know, I think maybe I'm doing this or I think maybe like the reason that I keep, you know, replaying this same script is maybe related to this. And I have no idea how to begin to like figure these things out. But well, when you have a creative thought or if you're thinking of something that intrigues you, what do you do? to help yourself hold on to that thought so you can get back to it and follow up. Yeah. I mean, I literally, it's funny that you asked that. Cause I literally just said to him, like what I'm starting with is like, I'm going to try to think about these things every day. Like I'm going to try to just, you know, at least once a day kind of go like checking in with like this curiosity that I have, like a bit of a self-awareness mm-hmm. about a particular thing. And then also, you know, I, I give this advice to my students all the time and I voiced it yesterday to my therapist, but you know, one thing I know is I'm a creative. And so, you know, just trying to figure out how to apply some creativity, you know? Yeah. Well, I always have my phone with me. It's on my nightstand next to my bed. So if I have a creative thought and it's something that I I definitely want to follow up on, I'll jot it down in notes. I do the same thing. Or on my little voice, little voice app, voice recorder. If a, if a tune comes into my head, even when I'm driving, I just pull it out and I hum yeah. it. I do the same thing. Yeah. Or sometimes I just say things like while I'm yeah. driving, because yeah. you need the voice app while you're driving, but I'll just be like, think more about this. Or I'll make myself a little note that will yeah. be like, ask this person about this thing. Like, right. But I think that's such a big part of it. And mm-hmm. this is why this is the artifice thing. Like right. it's not artifice in the sense that it's artificial, but it's, it's artifice in the sense that there's something hidden. Mm -hmm. And I think something that people who aren't creative or who find creativity to be elusive, something that they would be interested to know about Mm -hmm. a lot of creatives is this kind of thing, like just paying attention to like this, this nugget of a thought Mm -hmm. that's not even anything. Um, yeah, I don't know. I love it. I think it's awesome. Yeah. But you know, when that nugget has something, uh, totally. Yeah. But no one else would. I mean, if you try to say that nugget out loud to someone else, right. they would be like, what are you talking about? Because right. um, it's not developed. Yet. It's nothing yet. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a seed. Yeah. But you know, it, it's it's an important seed. Yeah. And that seed could be just like. You need to water it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Need to spend some time with it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people would be shocked to know how long ago those seeds happen. You know, like when a, when a writer publishes a new book or a filmmaker makes a new movie or someone opens a restaurant, you know, the seeds of that are in, you're in your wife's childhoods, right. you know, or they're in these college years where you're working in a restaurant right. and, you know, those seeds are, are growing and putting roots down for right. sometimes decades. I never thought that I'd be in the restaurant business. Yeah. Never, ever, ever. I love it. But an opportunity, you know, serendipity again, you know, things lined up and it was timing. I think if we tried to do something like that four years earlier when I was deciding to try to be a consultant, it probably wouldn't have worked. Yeah. But sometimes timing helps. Yeah. Um, all, 
also, I never thought that I'd be working as a partner with my wife. Right. Yeah. I mean, that never occurred to me. That's awesome. But the circumstance <clears throat> required that we put our skill sets together yeah. to do something. Because I had the business background. She had the, the culinary background. And timing was right to do something unique for Utah because there hadn't been a Jewish deli in Utah since 78. Holy cow. Dornbush had a business from 55 to 78, and he didn't have kids that wanted to take it over, mm -hmm. so he just closed it. Mm -hmm. That was the last time there was an authentic Jewish wow. deli in Utah. But I had done, you know, being the business guy, I researched it and ran into Dornbush in my research and realized, well, he, he was successful for 23 years. Yeah. There's a demand for it. There just isn't one. Yeah, yeah. So that helped us Ugh, put I, the whole thing together. It's such a gorgeous story. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about creativity, about art, anything else that's on your mind? Well, now my, my creative juices is more towards music. I'm in a duo. We write music. We just had one of our songs reach number one on the National Songwriters Chart. Wow. We wrote a song about uh, the coronavirus called the Corona Como Blues. Mm. It's a kind of a tongue-in-cheek song, funny song yeah. about dealing with COVID. Yeah. And uh, it's doing really well. And uh, yeah, I, I feel very blessed that, you know, I'm going to be turning 70 soon in a couple of weeks. And I feel blessed that at this point in my life, I could be doing something as fun and creative as playing music. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. That's creative too. You know, yeah. like just letting yourself change, not feeling like, well, this is what I've always done. So it's what I'll yeah. always do. It's just, it's a victory. It's right. a, it's a great story. Um, well, if there's nothing else that you want to talk about, I feel good about, I feel good about where we've landed. Great. Um, I always ask my guests the same kind of two questions as closers at the end. The first of which is what's your dream collaboration? So it could be any medium. You can build a team. You can dream up an event with a dream collaboration. I've had in, in the back of my mind for a while to try and help improve the um, uh, the what what is it that that. Um, I'm having a senior moment with a word. Let me help you. Like, what are we talking? What? Give me a clue. Well, the kind of the the um, the the ball in the center of making something happen. The creative. Uh, oh, there's a word for it. Like nucleus impetus. Right. So core. So, so supporting the local music scene in order to uh, have enough creative mass to be able to support musicians in this state. Yeah, we Producing, need that so badly. Right. So, m musicians get paid terribly here. It's not good. Well, artists in general, you got to be yeah. dead before you make any money. Yeah. But but the having the like, like a a web presence where 
the community can come and to find all the Nexus. resources. Nexus. Yeah. Ha- have all the resources they need in order to build their craft and mm. to eventually become a, a professional in their creative field of choice. Yeah. Whether it's in production or in performing or in songwriting or whatever. Mm. Wouldn't it be great if we could build the... Were you thinking of the word hub? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of the word you're looking for. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, it's not that. I, I'll know it exactly when, when I say it. And I'll probably scream it in the car when I sit in it. But, you know, the, there's just not the right amount of mass here in Salt Lake. So people end up leaving Salt Lake to it's, go somewhere else to so build true. their career. Like Tony Holiday. I don't know if you know who he is. A great blues harmonica player. He mm. had to move to Memphis yeah. and is building his career there. Um, so many people leave. Right, they leave because we don't have the the uh, the like creative nur- mass. Yeah, or we can't nurture. Yeah, yeah. It's one thing that I've also like tried to put my finger on. You know, I think about um, like one kind of ethos that I've heard a lot since I've moved here is this kind of idea of like like something needs to have a proof of concept before we right. we do it. Which leaves no room to nurture something new, like critical mass. That's oh, the word of, sure, sure, sure. There you go. Yeah. I knew I did. You know, it takes yeah. a while. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I totally agree. I think, like, you know, to have like a some kind of a way to in- encourage younger artists to f- explore and figure out who they are, um, when we expect, you know, and I don't just mean young in age, you know, but like just new artists mm-hmm. when we when we expect them to have a fully formed concept before they can perform what we end up doing is having a culture where our entire music culture is cover bands right you know cuz it's just not going to happen like right. people need time to develop develop their creative identity and build a body of work how many listening rooms do we actually have here in, in- the zero i mean yeah. I, maybe one you know yeah, yeah. exactly exactly yeah. so Getting back to the critical mass and and your question, wouldn't it be great to be able to collaborate with all the different parts and pieces that it takes to create and grow this critical mass? That would be a dream. Yeah. I tried to do that. I had a friend of mine, we we started something, but we just ran into brick walls Mm -hmm. and we were both too busy to to spend enough energy that it takes to lift. Yeah. But to find the resources, you know, Utah just got $1.6 billion of federal aid, and they're supposed to use some of that money on developing art. Wow. You know, it's a federal requirement. Wouldn't it be great to find a way to tap into that resource yeah. and create an infrastructure that allows us to develop the art talent in Utah so that we can enjoy yeah. it here? Right. So people don't leave. Yeah. 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 That would be great. I would love to see our art culture expand here, like to grow in mass and also to expand in flavors. Right. We had enough good art culture to pull off opening and closing ceremonies at the Olympics. That's true. That's something. So there's plenty of talent here in Utah. I have met more talented musicians and writers since coming here than any of the other places I've lived. But we're all frustrated that... There's not a lot of places for us to exhibit our yeah. creativity. And to grow, yeah. Right. To develop to develop. Yeah. 
Well, amen to that. Yep. And then finally, tell people where to find you. So you can you can talk about the deli and your music project. So the deli is um, you can, feldmansdeli.com. Um, we're on 2000 East, 2700 South, right on the corner. Come in for a nosh. Sounds we're amazing. open Tuesday through Saturday. Uh, Sundays and Mondays are my days to get out into the wilds of Utah. Yeah. Um, music. Um, we have a, a new website for the two old guys. Two old guys. Yeah, that's me and Tally. And uh, we're, we play all over town. If you want to catch up with us, it's two old guys music dot you any web. That's U E N I. W-E-B dot com. Okay. That's our website for the, the two old guys. We play every Thursday night at Rooted Cafe in Cottonwood Heights and cool. at many other venues all around Salt Lake City. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. It was great to meet you. Well, this was fun. You actually helped bring back memories that I haven't even thought of Good. in decades. That makes me so happy. I love it. I I love collecting like our, our the stories our our life stories through the lens of our creativity. It's just a joy. It's a joy to hear your story. Uh, Emily, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.